Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music, and I welcome you to this exciting installment of the Celebrity Series. I'm so honored to have the guest on today that I'm sure that will inspire you this afternoon. About our guest, today's guest is a legend in his own time. After four decades as one of the most popular inspirational artists in the music business with classic tunes such as Total Praise, Center of My Joy, and I Love the Lord, to his credit, the Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, and pianist continues to enjoy widespread popularity and influence. His songs have been recorded by Whitney Houston, Destiny Child, Kelly Price, Gerald LeVert, American Idol's Ruben Studdard, and a who's who of the gospel world. Even the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, has recently recorded a Richard Smallwood tune, Faithful, on her latest CD. Recently, while standing for a recording studio full of hand-picked friends and music industry colleagues, gathered for an intimate live recording for his CD, New CD Promises, he made a startling confession, quote, I had not written a song since my mom died in 2005, end quote. He told the stunned audience, I thought the gift I had dried up. I would try to write and nothing would come. I'd sit at the piano and pray and there was nothing. We are certainly honored to have this special person with us and so fortunate that his gifts have once again manifested themselves. Please welcome Mr. Richard Smallwood. Good afternoon, Mr. Smallwood. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm well, Richard. Thank you so much. It is, it is quite an honor to have you on the Celebrity Series with us today. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honored. Thank you so much. Now, Richard, just when I listen to your music or when anybody listens to your music, you know, the influence of classical music, it, it's almost immediately recognizable. Um, what was your first introduction to the piano and to classical piano in particular? Well, um, actually, my first introduction to piano was when my mother uh, bought me a baby grand blue toy piano when I was two years old. Um, after hearing me, uh, she said she would hear me hum melodies that I would hear at church uh as a toddler so she got me the piano and I began to uh um you know bang out the rhythms on the piano and hum this is really before I really began to really talk well and uh so it really started there of course later on as I got older probably around 5 um years of age I would crawl up on my uh stepfather's big piano real piano and start picking out melodies um so and then later harmonies. So by seven, I was uh, playing for his church. He was a pastor. Um, so you know the whole piano thing started very very uh, early. The classical thing, um, I guess, basically started when I started taking piano lessons at about seven years old and uh, playing the, the you know the little classical pieces that my my teacher would assign me. And then, of course, when I was about eight, my mother um, brought me home a recording of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 2 and gives it to me and says, you know, I want you to listen to this uh, 
um, this recording. And, and if you like this kind of music, then I'll take you to uh, some classical concerts. So I listened to it and fell in love with it immediately. And uh, so then Mom began to take me to hear, you know, the symphony orchestras, you know. So I, I was listening to the classical as well as, you know, on on another day she'd take me to hear gospel concerts. So I was getting all of this as a kid, you know, growing up. So you got a good diet of a variety of music. That is that is certainly wonderful. Now, I was also reading just in my, my research that your father was a lover of hymns. Talk to, talk to me about how you used to play the hymns for your father. Yeah, he was a uh, – I came up in a very strict um, religious uh, household, and like I said, with him being a pastor, he was very traditional in his um, – and his appetite or his his for mu for for different kinds of music genres of music, mm-hmm. and certainly he was a lover of hymns. So, in order to play uh, for the church, I had to know the hymns. So he would uh, pull out um, an old Baptist hymnal and put it up in front of me, and and I and he'd go through the hymns, you know, sometimes an hour or two per day, and I'd have to play all the hymns. Uh, and then he'd make me uh, play him in different keys. You know, he would say, you know, play Jesus, keep me near the cross in F, and I'll play it in A flat, and I'll play it in E flat. And So, I mean, all that really, you know, was my foundation and taught me um, how to play. Uh, but not only that, it instilled in me a love of different genres of music. Of course, outside of the home, I was listening to secular, of course, and R&B because I wasn't able to listen to it at home. But what it did was just gave me a, a, a very uh, a diverse foundation in terms of the kind of music that uh, that I was exposed to. And it's funny that we start off talking about the hymns, and not to put you on the spot, but have you ever been in a situation where you run across a musician who can play everything under the sun, and then when you give them a hymn, it's it's a hard, complex chore. Almost definitely, you know, and it and 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 it really uh, it pains me to hear that sometimes because I, I run across so much talent, but I always try to encourage you know young musicians coming along that you know you need to learn how to play everything. You don't need to be one sided. Learn how to play it all because the more you learn how to play, the more diverse you are, the better of a musician you are, and you know the more opportunities you will get. Mm, so all the aspiring church musicians out there and people who are starting at music schools, Richard has given you some sound advice right there. So go and get your hymn book and open it up and turn to the first one and read from start <laughs> to finish. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, now, what would you say uh, probably was the defining moment that called you or you knew that you had a place in music ministry? I sort of always knew. I mean, I, I never... You know, as as a teeny teeny little kid, um, I have this picture of of me when I was probably about five in this robe, <laughs> and um, I had this thing about robes. I just like to wear <laughs> choir robes, and it was just like I always asked my mother, you know, what she what you know, she said, what do you want for Christmas? I want a robe. <laughs> She's like, a robe for what? And I could, I you know, I would I would uh, stand in front of the mirror and put on the recordings and pretend like I was playing and singing in front of thousands of people as far back as I can remember. So I don't think I realized it 
that it was a calling at the point, but I knew it was something that I wanted to do more than anything else in the world. I never wanted to be, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, or a fireman, or a policeman, you know, like most little kids do, but that's this is just something that I always, you know, wanted to do. I think one of the defining moments when God just really spoke to me and told me the seriousness of what it was he was calling me to was uh, um, when I first started um, the Smallwood Singers in uh, 1977, um we had to uh we were we were asked to come to the Smithsonian uh, institution and um do a be a part of a of a of a festival it was like a um a festival of different kinds of music um ethnic music basically um so they asked us to come and do you know African American gospel and we sang for about a half an hour or something like that and it was a it was a mixed audience there were Caucasians as well as African Americans and, and others, and uh, there was a Caucasian lady sitting on the front row uh, next to a friend of mine who had come with me. And when we finished singing, that half an hour, our half an hour was up, and we finished singing. Uh, this young Caucasian lady turned to my friend and said to her, "You know, when I got up this morning, I had contemplated suicide." She said, "But after hearing this music and hearing this this group." I, I've discovered two things. One thing is that uh, I know that my life is not mine to take. And my the God. second thing is that um, I don't know that much about God, but I know he exists, and I really believe he has something for me to do with my life. And so when my friend told me that, you know, it really terrified me because I think it told me um, the importance of ministers of music, you never know uh, who's in the audience and who's listening to you. So it's more than just getting up and singing a song. It's it's it's, it's getting up and ministering uh, because that's what people are there for. There are people who have needs that you know nothing about. So you know it, it's a very sacred trust to be called into this because um, you know to whom much is given, much is required. So that that sort of changed my whole concept about what I was doing. I just wasn't doing it for fun or because I enjoyed it, but I realized that I was doing it because God was using me in some kind of way to reach people. So I don't take that lightly. Uh, I take that very, very seriously because you never know who's listening to your recordings or who's listening to you in performance. Uh, And the ministry goes beyond just the performance. I mean, I have people come up to me with questions and 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 problems you know off stage that blow me away and I'm like my god I'm not a psychologist I'm not a psychiatrist and God says no but I've given you ministry and your duty and your job is to minister to these people not only through your singing but sometimes you have to minister uh them minister to them through the word and and advice and and prayer and those kinds of things so it, it that whole um um situation at the Smithsonian just sort of turned my mind around in terms of why it is that I do um, what I do and ultimately why am I here on this planet. Mm. And even in my short interaction with you, I like the fact that you have a, a sense of accessibility to you where a person, is. when we look at you, even with myself, 
included. When we look at you, we don't just see this this superstar or this unattainable icon that we can't touch. You know, you come across as someone very approachable. And on that day when that choir, when that person heard you all sing at the Smithsonian, I'm sure that person felt that spirit also. And I want to say thank you for that. Oh, well, God bless you, man. I mean, I just think that, you know, ministry extends beyond the stage. You know, and uh, I just think, and I and I love people, and I I'm very concerned about the welfare of people, and so um, you know, I, I think that it when we're called, we're called more than just singing a song or writing a song or playing a song, especially if if you want to really reach people. I think that you have to be with a reason, accessible, you know, so that you can uh, reach out to people and, and, and help them even further if you can. Mm. Just on a lighter note, do you still have that picture of you standing up in that choir robe? Yes, actually on my Facebook page, I think. It's, it's on one of, <laughs> under one of those uh, albums on my Facebook page. But, yeah, they actually uh, my mom or my stepdad, one, had a a, a lady to make me a robe a little black robe, and I'm standing there smiling. I couldn't have been no more than five, I'm thinking, maybe four or five, something like that. And uh, that was my, I guess that was my PR picture. I don't know. <laughs> just I was just too happy <laughs> with this little robe on, you know. <laughs> the weird kid. <laughs> well, you know, choir robes can always be a point of dissension for choirs all across the country. So choir directors just get this picture off of Mr. Smallwood's Facebook page and show it to your choir. And maybe they'll buy you uh, to sit on the road based on the fact that Mr. Smallwood has one on. <laughs> now, just moving a little bit forward, I want to talk about one of the things that a lot of people are interested in. Um, as I mentioned when I began the interview, a lot of people, especially trained musicians, cannot deny when they listen to your music, it has such a rich form, and especially classical music and the traits of classical music are just fused so seamlessly with the heritage of gospel music. Um, what, what, what was the first inspiration or the first moment that led you to try to mesh those two genres in one style? Well, you know, you know, Patrick, that, that's not that's not anything that I set out to do. I mean, I never really sat down and said, I'm going to try to um, mix these two genres together and see what happens. It, it had everything to do with what I was exposed to as a kid, um, which, you know, of course, was classical and gospel. Um, when I was in my, probably around 12 or something like that, my mother exposed me to Broadway music. So she would bring home these recordings of, you know, The Sound of Music, Camelot, you know, uh, Candide by Leonard Bernstein. And, I mean, so many different, you know, those operettas as well as, as, as Broadway music. So I got all this as a kid coming up. So when I began to write, it wasn't that I was trying to do anything different. It's all that I knew because that's all I listened to coming up. So, you know, you sort of are what you're exposed to. So, you know, what came out of of my starting when I started to write were all of these genres that I had listened to and had just like immersed myself in, you know, all of my childhood and and my teenage years as well. So, uh that's just sort of a culmination of 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 what I listened to and what I experienced as, as a kid, but it just sort of came out that way. It's nothing I I really planned to do. Mm. 
That is phenomenal. Well, I want to take a moment and play two very short clips back-to-back, and I want to demonstrate exactly what we're talking about. And perhaps if the listeners out there are um, keen to classical music or it might be a first introduction, this would be some examples uh, of this fusing of classical and gospel music together. Okay. Now, that's the first example. I'm going to play one more and see at the end of both can anyone guess the two master composers that have been quoted for the pieces. This is the second example.
Wow, that was just sheer artistry, Richard. Just sheer oh, thank artistry. You. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I can't. Well, first of all, the the, the first um, piece um, is actually uh, based on the Rachmaninoff vocalies. Um, as a student at uh, Howard, um, I ended up playing for a lot of the voice majors, uh, and that's one of the pieces that I that I played for some of the uh, vocal majors, and and um, it was such a beautiful melody. I always said I want to do something. I want to put some words to that, and and really, you know, and, and do something with it. And years later, after I finished Howard. Um, uh, I did the resurrection, which is just sort of a salute to to Rachmaninoff, who is probably my favorite uh, composer, specifically from the Romantic period. Um, and um, uh, Jesus, lover of my soul, I can't can't take credit for that one. Um, that particular arrangement was done by the late Dr. Pearl Williams Jones. Um, Pearl was an incredible musician, the daughter of the late uh, Bishop Smallwood E. Williams, who was the founder of the Bible Way Churches um, worldwide. And she mentored me as I as I uh, came into Howard University as a freshman. She sort of took me under her wing. Incredible musician, incredible historian on um, the field of gospel music. And she used to do that as a solo, um, which used to just blow me away, how she just sort of fused that hymn and the um the uh, you know the accompaniment from the Yesu of man's design by by Bach and uh when she passed um untimely passing from from cancer uh I wanted to do something to honor her so I took that arrangement that that she did and um and sort of made it for for a group harmonized because she used to do it as a solo um, made it for a small group, which is the small with singers, and put some harmonies and some little, some little twists in it, and dedicated it to her, and recorded it on that particular uh, uh, project. So she 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 was a great influence and a great uh, um, um, supporter and mentor of mine as well. Mm. You know the resurrection. It really blew me away. The first time that I even knew this particular arrangement existed was when you uh, were a recipient of one of the Genius Awards at the Genius Conference for Men that was put on by Angela and Alicia Jones, I think, right. it was last year. And when uh-huh. I remember when um, I think they had that mentioned that arrangement, I was like, well, I need to go find that. And then I went to YouTube and. There it was. I don't know if I should yeah. have said that. But <laughs> well, you know, it, it, but it, there it's, it on a, it's on a. That's on the very, very first album that I ever did, the Richard Smallwood singer. So that's not even in, in print anymore. So if if you if you do want to hear, you have to go to YouTube. Um, but yeah, that was that was done in 1981, uh, actually. So uh, yeah, that's that's been a minute ago. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I, one other thing I really like is the fact that y- you are a soloist and, a, and a, a star, if you will, to use that word in your own right. But you also have such a collaborative spirit where you have collaborated with other uh, musicians, where you have not necessarily been the soloist, but you've in fact been the accompanist. And I uh, recently um, had, had had seen that you had an opportunity to collaborate with soprano Angela Brown at the Trumpet Awards. How did that all come about? Oh, that was that was it was fun. It was it was it was a great uh, a great night. Um, 
I'm not sure how it really happened. I got a call from my record company, uh, the um, um, the PR department, and you know, said about the Trumpet Awards, and and uh, I think Angela had uh, expressed some interest in maybe us collaborating, doing something together. So I was like, great, that that would be that would be fine. Um, and uh, so it was. A, she's a wonderful, sweet, sweet person, and a and a, and a great talent. So we had a good time just getting together, and I think we did um, um, to dream the impossible dream, and and did a little bit of total praise um, uh, in it, so like a little medley type thing. And uh, she did an, an incredible job, but it was fun. I, I enjoy I enjoy working with gifted people. I just I have this thing that for people who are just gifted, I just I enjoy being around them. I enjoy working with them and uh, and seeing them shine as well. Mm. Now you know the soprano. We love Angela to death, but in the world of opera, we refer to one one soprano as as sort of the the, the grandmother of opera. And tell you have to tell us how did that collaboration happen? Where you accompanied the great soprano Leotine Price at the White House? Oh wow! Um, actually, it was um, a. TV special um, that the White House still does around Christmas time. Uh, this one wasn't done at the White House specifically, but it was actually done at Shiloh uh, Baptist Church. But it was during the Reagan uh, administration, and of course, President and Mrs. Reagan were there. And it was the, 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 this particular show um, had to do with tracing the um, uh, the black music art form, starting with. Um, the Negro spiritual um, coming up through um, um, traditional gospel uh, as well as what we were considered then contemporary gospel. This was 1984, I believe, 83, 84, somewhere around there. And um, so they, they contacted the Smallwood Singers to uh, be a part of the contemporary gospel thing. Um, the Howard University Choir uh as well as some of the uh members of the Shiloh uh mass choir or senior choir were were the, were the choral aggregation and they got Miss Price to narrate the entire thing as well as perform um so uh she did uh a number of negro spirituals um, in fact I'm I'm in the process of trying to transfer um, the VHS copy of that to um, to, imp- to to uh, to a movie form, so I can actually post some of it on on my Facebook page uh, before it disintegrates because mm. it's so old. Uh, oh, wow. But um, I ended up playing. I think it was um, on Amazing Grace um, that that she did um, um, because we did some of the hymns as well as the Negro spirituals, uh, and then we ended up doing the. Uh, Contemporary uh, gospel music of that era, which was considered contemporary. Now we consider traditional, but then it was contemporary. So it was it was a great uh, experience. She was so gracious and so wonderful, and just had a ball with the gospel music. She clapped and laughed, and and just uh, just had a had a great time. So she was she was a wonderful wonderful person. Wow, that's that's just awesome. So you know that we're going to be looking for those those clips to appear. <laughs> on <your face. laughs> yeah, I'm I'm gonna definitely have to transfer them, yeah. 
Mm. Now you hit a you hit a topic early, and I kind of want to go back to it um, because sometimes I think that it, it, it's thought that anybody could just write a song or play an instrument, um, but when a person listens to your music, there's such a, a depth in the music. Uh, what are some of the things that you consider when you contemplate birthing um, a new composition? Oh, wow. Uh, well, um, I, I think that it's important, number one, that you write music that is relevant lyrically, uh, music that uh, encourages, uh, music that makes a difference, hopefully, in, in, in people's lives when they hear it, um, the kinds of songs that may start with a um, a sad note. It, it may start with a, a situation you were in, but it doesn't leave you there. At the end of the song, it brings you out victoriously from, from whatever it is that, that, you, that, that you came out of. Um, in terms of the music, um, you know, songs that are singable in terms of the melody, uh, songs that are memorable, songs that have what we call a hook, something that sort of reels you in when you hear it. You may not be able to remember the whole song, but there's a part that continues to, to ring in your mind long after you uh, first stop, uh, long after you first heard it. Um, um, you know, music that's structurally sound and makes, you know, music has to have a a beginning, a middle, and an end. It just shouldn't go on and on with no structure. Just like a, a story or a, or a novel or a sermon or whatever, it has to have structure. So, you know, things things of that nature. I don't necessarily think of those things specifically when I write, but those are things that when I teach my songwriting classes that I think that are, that are very, very important. I think they're just sort of um, innate to what I do now because I've been doing it for so long, but uh, I'm I'm probably I'm not I'm not probably I am the hardest person on myself, and I throw out more music than I keep because I know if it doesn't come up to the standard where it works for me, I don't want anybody else to hear it. So I'm I, I'm I'm a stickler about what I do write, and it goes through a number of of uh, different processes before it's finally accepted by me. <laughs> How often do you do songwriting classes? Well, I don't. I don't. Do, I do. I, I'm. I'm a part of the uh, um, Hawkins Music and Art Seminar Love Fellowship Conference, um, and I have been for well since 1978 when they first started, and I've been teaching songwriting there um, since its inception. So I really that's that's when I usually teach. I I sometimes do it in some of the workshops that I'm, that I'm called to do. But I definitely do that every year uh, as a part of the Hawkins Seminar uh, songwriting class, and we do uh, songwriting for five days um, doing that um, um, seminar. Mm, that, that would be an honor to be a student in that class. Now, speaking of new music, you have a new CD set to be released on June 21st entitled Promises. Could you tell the listeners about that project? Well, it's a project that I'm I'm very, very excited about. It's... Um, um, it was sort of birthed out of the whole um, um, the whole concept of, of of the promises that God has given us as His people. Um, I was um, watching the news and was just sort of being b- bombarded by all the negative stuff about 
you know, the, the, the recession and and people who were losing their homes, people who didn't have jobs. And it, it started to get really, really depressing, and I started thinking that, you know, I think sometimes we forget that regardless of what we see around us, regardless of what the media says, God in his word has made us certain promises. And if God promised it, that sells it. He's going to keep his promise. I wanted to write a project that uh, all of the songs um, had to do with different promises that God made us in the Bible so that we could be reminded, myself included, because we, we sometimes we forget because we are living in a natural world and we're bombarded by natural things, but we forget that we're spiritual beings with a spiritual father. So um, um, I want to write this project that had to do with these promises just to remind us all that God's got our back. He promised that he would provide for us even in the midst of recession, even in the midst of what's going on around us. God is still God. And if he said that he would, he would, what he would do, if he said it, then that means that he's going to do it. That settles it. So um, that's basically what the concept of the CD is about, promises. Mm. Now, you lost your mother, and I just definitely want to extend my condolences there. You lost your mother back in 2005. Could you maybe share with us maybe the impact that it had on your writing, and particularly as it, as it relates to this project? Well, um, you know, I am an only child, and my mother was like my my twin. We were just almost like identical twins at growing up. It was just like you didn't see Mabel without seeing Richard. You know, it was like they were just always together. And, and uh, she was very close to me. Um, she, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize uh, what an influence she had on me till much, much later, I think, after she had gone. But I remember as a kid, and I would listen to recordings and and things of that nature, and I would say, "Mama, listen to this," and she'd say, "Yeah, that's that's nice, baby." And I was like, "Oh, I wish I could play like this, or I wish I could write like this. I'll never be this good." And she said, "Listen," she said, "You can do as good as they can, or better." She said, "Don't you ever short sell yourself." So you know, it's like she gave me so much of the confidence that I had. And when she passed, I, I lost that confidence for a while. Uh, I didn't play, I didn't perform, I didn't sing, I didn't do anything um, for almost a year. Um, I had just lost, it seemed like, whatever it was that I had. Um, and little by little, it started to come back. I started to play, and, and then we started, the vision started doing some dates. Um but the writing part didn't seem to to come back, and it was almost um, almost four years before the writing part sort of came back. And I just really thought that maybe this is the part of my gift that's that's gone. And you know, maybe I've written my last song. If so, you know, so be it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna jump off a bridge about it. But uh, I, I just sort of accepted that as being fact that I just wouldn't write again. And then, of course, like in 2009 was when uh, the songs began to come. Um, a lot of them came through dreams, which had really never happened to me before. Um, they came all kind of ways, like three and four songs sometimes at one time. Uh, and I think a lot of those songs uh, have to do with 
you know what I what I went through with 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 her loss um, during that time, uh, and I think I began to write from a place that I'd never written before because, of course, I'd never lost my mom before. So where I was writing from was a very different, different, different place. Um, not a sad place per se, but the songs I think that came out of out of that may have a hint of sadness to it, but at the end it has encouragement to it that sort of lets us know that it doesn't matter what we go through in life, and life can be really, really difficult. Uh, it can really be um, um, a really hard thing to deal with, uh, but God bring, can bring you through and will bring you through whatever it is that life dishes out. Uh, mm-hmm. All you have to do is trust Him, and so you know that's that's a, a lot of those songs you know sort of came from that whole experience. Mm, 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 mm. That that was a word. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. With us, so no matter what what you're going through, just know that that God will be there for you. That, almost thank you so much. Almost oh my goodness, <laughs> you almost got me happy. I had to get my composure back together. <laughs> <laughs> now, Richard, there's no way in the world that I could have this conversation and not mention total praise. It it has to be probably the most quintessential sacred song. It's sung at almost every church function, at the end of every concert, at church services. I mean, it, it makes such a powerful statement. What inspired this song in particular? Well, that uh, total praise came out of a very, during a very difficult time in my life. Um, my mom was ill at the time, not until death. This, this was about ten years, probably before she passed. But she was she she, she was going through a very uh, difficult time during that period when she was very ill, in and out of the hospital. Um, my god brother um, had brain cancer, was terminally ill, and I ended up being like a caregiver. I stopped traveling because my god brother was staying with me for a while, and so I was I became this caregiver, and I was running back and forth um, to my mom and to him, uh, and just beginning to feel. Um, just frustrated because I felt so helpless in that I wasn't able to do anything physically to make my loved ones better. All I could really do was pray, uh, and I would see them suffering, and it just just wounded me so to be there and not uh, able to to do anything but just be there. Um, So uh, I remember sitting at the piano one particular day and just crying because I just felt like just felt helpless and and I was I was saying this I was ministering somewhere a couple of weeks ago and I was saying to the congregation that you know there are times when you know uh that God is with you you know what he said in his word but there's sometimes when you even though you know he's there you can't feel him and that was one of those times when I just I knew he was there because of what he promised me, but I just couldn't I couldn't feel him I, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't get any any consolation I couldn't get any you know Lord hug me make me feel better you know um, and so I was trying to write this pity party song I was that's that's really the only way to describe it because I was sitting at the piano having this one great big Richard pity party and 
I was trying to write a song that said, you know, you know, Lord, I will lift my eyes to the hills, and I need you to, you know, come down from the hills and and hold me and dry my tears and 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 heal my 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 relatives and and that kind of thing. And and God just kept as I was writing it, God just kept taking it to this whole praise theme, and I was like, you know, I don't mean no harm, God, but. I don't really feel like praising right now. You know, not, I don't want to write a praise song. I, this is a song for me that I just want to say, have pity on me, you know. And I just kept, it was like a tug of, tug of war almost, actually. Of course, God won, but uh, it just began to develop into this praise song, you know. And when I finished writing it, when I finished it, okay, God, what is it? what is this that you're trying to give me? And when I finished it, you know, it's like he spoke to me and said, you know, I see your pain. I see your tears. I feel everything that you're going through. But even in this, I still need your praise, not partial praise. I need you to totally praise me because when you praise me, there are certain things that happen. When you praise me, um, that means that you're using your faith because you can't see how this is going to end, but you're praising me uh, in spite of Uh it also means that, um, you know, you're trusting me because you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you're trusting me because you're, you're, you're praising me. So I, I need your praise. And, and not only that, you're letting me know that you have faith to know that whatever it is you're going through, I'm going to bring it out all right, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, praise me not only in your mountaintop, situation when everything is going fine but learn how to praise me in your valley experiences that's the hard part when you don't know how uh, things are going to turn out it doesn't look like it's going to turn out in your favor but you praise me anyhow because you know that i still got this you know i I preordained what's going to happen before the before the uh work before the the work the world was formed so um you know Learn how to praise me in all seasons, not only in your in your high seasons, but in your low seasons. So that's you know that's where that song came from, and I think that's why that song means so much to me. I, I know everybody has their own reason why they love that song, but God gave me that song in in a very critical time in my life where I just really sort of wanted to throw in the towel and say forget this, you know. And but uh, He was telling me uh, the importance of praise. And and how to pray and praise is also a weapon. You can defeat your enemy with praise. That's what um, in in the Bible when uh, the the enemy was coming towards uh, King Jehoshaphat in the kingdom of Judah, the way he defeated them was sent the praise team of the singers out, and they they began to praise and defeated the whole army just by the sound of their praise. So that just tells us that that our praise can defeat whatever it is. That's going on around us, even when you don't feel like it. You know, it's all about praise. Wow. You know what? If if every choir director had a transcription of this <laughs> interview, particularly this section, put in the program when they sang or when they sing Total Praise, they would have a greater understanding of the piece. Because I'll be honest, I, you, I would just have assumed that the song was a jubilant praise song but not until I've had this conversation to know the the trial and tribulation and then ultimately the jubilation that this this euphoric song comes from. So, oh, my goodness, thank you so much. God bless my hand. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I want to move on uh, just as we, we uh, wind down the interview. I want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of gospel music is sort of parallel to today because a lot of times when people talk about gospel music, it's sometimes looked down upon in a lesser form. Um, but could you maybe discuss the fact of your your compositional process and maybe the use of um I guess theory and so forth. I guess what I'm getting to a lot of times people think that because it's gospel it doesn't have the same intellect to it because it's gospel. Could you maybe talk about maybe some of the the, the harmonic uh things or uh the, the theoretical musical principles that you might use when you write? You know, I, I, I don't know if, if I use a a theoretical uh, principle, or I even, you know, use any kind of um, special compositional techniques other than, you know, form and making sure that that it it, it makes sense uh, in terms of the form. Um, but it, it really, it really, this is a pet peeve. This, this this really bothers me because people don't understand that I went to Howard University during a time where gospel music was not accepted and that you could actually get kicked out of the music program if you were caught playing anything other than classical music in the practice area. So I was one of those crazy ones um, who, along with uh, many, many students who felt like I did, actually took over the fine arts building and sat in uh, we didn't even have, I mean, it's not only gospel, we didn't have a jazz program, we didn't have any uh, African-American um, courses in in music other than the black classical composers, and of course maybe Scott Joplin and people like that, and Nathaniel Dett and, and people like that, but we were not allowed to do this. So my thing has always been that there is good music in every genre. There is bad classical music, and I don't mean bad in a good sense, I mean bad. There's good classical music. There's bad gospel music. There's good gospel music. Every music art form that God has given us is good. Um, and that's what we were trying to get um, the powers that be to see. Needless to say, we took over the building for about, I guess it was maybe two weeks or, or, or until the dean would hear our request. And our requests weren't anything phenomenal. Our requests were we loved the classical music. That was a part of who we were. But we also wanted to introduce to the students their own heritage other than mm-hmm. classical. We have made, you know, our, our, our forefathers, you know, composed these wonderful, not the arranged Negro spirituals per se, but just wonderful harmonies and, and, and melodies that um, that finally segued into what we know as as gospel music. And so why can't we we're at a at an institution, a learning of higher learning, why can't we learn about this? And of course that's when the gospel choir was formed, that's when the gospel um the I mean the uh, jazz department was formed, and a lot of that stuff. But, you know, um music can be good and it can be bad. You cannot um judge music by the genre. Just because you don't like it just because that may not be your cup of tea, that's fine. I'm not a a, a heavy metal rock fan. That's not what I grew up on. But I'm not going to say that it's all trash because I don't understand it or it's not something that's, that's palatable, to, palatable to me. 
So that's always, you know, something I'm, I'm always fighting for. Let's not be judgmental in terms of uh, the genre of music, but the quality of the music. Is it good? Does it make sense musically? You know, not, you know, not the genre. Now, that is a fine point. And, you know, Richard, that whole institute of, of gospel music and, and and its acceptance at the college level, it, it still exists because when I was a student at Virginia State University, when we came in as freshmen, you know, I knew people who they, you know, got written up and things of that nature because they were in the gospel choir. And if we had oh, concert yeah. choir rehearsing, you better believe that they would, that the director would go up to the um, rehearsal room where the gospel choir was, being held and handpicked those music majors right out of there and let right. them know that they were supposed to be in concert choir. So that's something that there still definitely exists, and I like how the fact that you're basically saying that we need to push for balance and more acceptance in, exactly. in our programs, particularly in our HBCU programs. Exactly. It's, it's, it's so important, man. And nobody loves classical music more than I do. But I love what my people, you know, I didn't, you know, you know, that comes from another part of the world, which mm. I respect and I love because it's so much a part of what I do. But how are you going to embrace that and not embrace what your own people have put together in a historical black college? You know, it's just like, it's incredible. It's incredible. So, I mean, I'm always preaching about that everywhere I go because I really, you know, we as students at Howard during that time really went through it. I mean, we had people who were kicked out of the, the voice department and my I was a voice minor, you know, and my teacher uh threatened to kick me out of, of her class. And I just basically <laughs> told her, you know, if that's what you want to do, then you go ahead and do that. I said, because you're not gonna let me you're not gonna force me to deny my heritage, nor my spiritual life, because this is this two things that are tied together. And of course she she didn't pay any. She didn't pay any mind. She let me do it because I played for all of all of her students anyway. So, you know, all their recitals and all their fine, all their juries or whatever. So, but uh, a lot of people had, God, you know, God. Thank God, I had a, a very understanding uh, piano teacher. I was a piano major, and Dr. Thomas Kerr was my was my piano teacher. He said, Richard, I don't care what you play, just as long as you play it well. You know, that was his his whole take on things. But everybody didn't have that was not that fortunate in terms of their, their, their instructors and the ways they felt about it. Mm, that's a key point. Just as we are, we're about to wrap up, could you maybe speak on, um, well, first of all, we certainly lost a, a, a gospel icon in Walter Hawkins. Could you maybe speak on his influence in your life and your friendship with uh, Walter Hawkins? Well, you know, Walt was, a very, very different. I met Walter and Edwin when I was a student at Howard, and I probably was about 19 or 20 years old, and that's when the Hawkins Singers began to come to um, Washington and perform, and that's how I met them, and we formed a long-lasting, you know, friendship. Of course, Edwin and Walter um, were probably my two biggest influences in terms of writing gospel music. I hadn't really started writing until I got to Howard, so they were basically a part of that whole influence in, 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 in writing. Walter, number one, wrote some of the most wonderful church music ever, and, and his songs, you know, will be sung till the end of time, and and uh, because he writes that kind of stuff, you know, change going up yonder, he's that kind of friend, be grateful, and, the, you know, and the list the list goes on, uh, and certainly he was a great influence uh, to me 
Um, he was not only a great influence in terms of his music, but he was a great influence in terms of his preaching. A lot of people didn't get the chance to hear Walter, but Walter was a dynamic speaker, and every time I would hear him preach, it was like he was talking directly to me. He seemed to know what I was going through, what I was dealing with, but I think because he was a musician and some of the things that he had to deal with, I think we dealt with similar things, so we just sort of connected on that level. You know, I had the chance to write with him um, on the last Project Journey, which was one of the biggest thrills of my life. And although we were good friends, I never got over the I never got over the fact that he was Walter Hawkins. That that was I was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. this is Walter Hawkins. And so I said, yeah, but y'all good friends. I said, yeah, but y'all understand this is Walter Hawkins. This is my influence. <laughs> this is my oh my God, you know. And so I was a nervous wreck when we wrote we wrote it at home, you know. But after about the first hour or so, we just collapsed and laughed and acted crazy and you know I wrote. But he was definitely a a great friend, a great influence, and I miss him so incredibly much. This will be the first year that he was not, is not at the um, Hawkins Seminar. Um, so it's going to be bittersweet, um, but certainly we're going to go on and, 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 and try to represent him the way he would want to be represented. Represented. I, I tried to honor him on a new project, and, and I did one of his songs, um, Is There Any Way, which is my favorite Walter um, Hawkins songs, and did it uh, in tribute to him on, on Promises. So that will be a part of the tribute as well. Uh, but I, yeah, he's a dear, dear friend, and I miss him so, so very much. Richard, I want to thank you so much for taking this wonderful opportunity. Gosh, it's hard to believe that we're at the last six minutes of an of an whole hour. My goodness, wow. it, it, it sounds <laughs> it seems like that we've been we've been talking and talking almost as two friends who've known each other for a long time. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge and your extraordinary career with us today. Oh, no problem, Patrick. Thank you for having me. I've I've definitely enjoyed it. And just before you hang up, I definitely want to give a shout-out to Joson Robinson, who is uh, with Design 1320 LLC, and he's the young man who designed the wonderful graphic that was used to advertise um, the interview. So I certainly want to thank him today. Oh, yeah, that was great. He did a great, great, beautiful job. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and I I hope you have a good afternoon. And, again, if people want to secure Richard Smallwood's new project promises, it will go on sale on June 21st, and you may uh, make a pre-sale order at Amazon.com. And I'm sure that the album, not I'm sure, I know that the album will be all across the country and store outlets everywhere. But, Richard, have a great day, and thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much, Patrick. God bless you. Thank you so much. Again, you've been listening to the Celebrity Series and a special interview with the legendary Richard Smallwood, and it was such an honor to speak to him this afternoon. He gave such a wealth of knowledge. Again, the new CD, Promises, is set to be released on June 24th. First, and you can pick that up or make pre-sale orders on Amazon or buy the recording at stores all across the country. Again, this is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. I thank you for listening. I hope that you would take time to follow me on Facebook and also on Twitter at Patrick D. McCoy. My name on Facebook is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. Again, this is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I do wish you a great 
afternoon.